0: And welcome to another exciting episode of Open Swim. With your host, Hallie Bram-Kogelschatz.
1: Brian Andrew Jasinski.
0: Allie Healy. Jamie Lee Reichman. Lauren Henderson. All right, guys. As you can hear, we're still dialing in remotely from Shark and Minnow, various satellite offices across across the city. And at the time of recording, we find ourselves rounding out the school year. So we've been talking a lot about education. The big question is... Are we really looking at a normal fall and so today we wanted to talk a little bit about education in the time of the coronavirus and what it's meant for this spring. What it means for children, as we see a summer coming at us without camps without educational experiences outside of the classroom and what will it mean when we go back in fall. I know that all of us have had conversations with various members of the educational community, and I'm hoping we can go around and talk a little bit about who we've interviewed before we jump into those conversations for our listeners.
1: I spoke with a good friend. His name is Rob Rivera. He is a longtime teacher in the Solon school system. He teaches AP history. What's interesting with Rob is he was a teacher and then took some time off and he actually went into law and then realized he missed really the passion that he had for being an educator.
2: So this is my 20th year of teaching. I started teaching 8th grade in the early 90s for three years and then I moved to high school. I started teaching in Maple Heights and now I'm at Solon High School. And I left for six years and returned to the classroom in 2006, and I currently teach AP classes. That's U.S. history and European history. Over the years, I've taught all different levels from college prep to honors in history and government, and I also run the mock trial team, and I'm in my union leadership as well at Solon. So I have my uh, fingers in a lot of different pies with extracurriculars, classroom teaching, and then also union work to solve problems in in the district.
1: One of the things I really was struck by in my conversations with him, and I think any educators that I've talked to, is they they really are feeling the sense of mourning. You know, you keep hearing about seniors and how they're mourning this loss of normalcy of the school year and missing out on these key life moments, such as graduations and proms and school plays. The teachers and the faculty and the administration, they're just as much in mourning.
3: I spoke with my stepmother, Tracy Bortz, who is the Director of Early Childhood Education at Groshechter Day School. Hi Tracy! Hello Jamie! She has been in education since she graduated from college in South Africa and has been working at Schechter since 2001. Can you please tell me a bit about yourself and your connection to education? So I have been an early childhood educator for many, many years. I have spent um, the last 15 being the early childhood director at Gross Schechter Day School in Pepper Pike. Um, and that is a private Jewish day school. We have children from the age of six weeks in our infant care and our early childhood program goes up to and including kindergarten. Then the rest of the school is first grade through eighth grade. We, are, we stop at eighth grade. Bye.
4: I spoke to my mom, Suzanne Healy. Hi, Mom. Hi, Allie. Let's start with you telling us more about yourself and your connection to education.
5: So I have a very unique connection to education. As a professional, I'm the director for online learning at the Weatherhead School of Management at Case Western Reserve University. I've been a student now for 13 years, finished my doctorate in education in February of last year, and then in August of last year, I went back to school and I'm getting a second masters i also teach in higher education as an adjunct professor at two different universities
0: dr healy is one of my official heroes now and all the time but you know one of the things that i think will be interesting to hear from her is you know she's been really as the director of online learning she has been driving this digitalization of education and hybrid learning models for the university for several years. And, you know, she was out ahead of this. This is really a moment where her skill set and her thinking is sort of thrust into the spotlight for a major university as they look to pivot quickly. The good news is she thinks about these things all day, every day, (laughs) and so it's really a moment where things can be integrated quickly and it may be accelerating even some of her efforts. Her role, unlike a lot of people's roles, is more in need than ever in this moment. I spoke
4: with my fiance, Chase Benson. He is a first-year teacher and he offered a really interesting approach because he was a first-year teacher.
6: So I teach general science, I teach advanced science, which is more of like an honors class, and I teach a pre-engineering program which is all hands on. There are no textbooks, there are no writing utensils, there's nothing of that. We do a lot of like 3D printing, we do a lot of like computer design, CAD design, a lot of coding online. I went to school to become a marine biologist. I attended Bowling Green State University and graduated with my degree in marine biology and oceanographic sciences and I had no intentions of becoming a teacher, but now I don't know why I never wanted to become one.
0: Eric and I had a chance to speak with a very close friend of ours who lives outside of Detroit and has taught both fifth grade as well as is currently teaching eighth grade language arts and literature. So hi,
7: Lauren. Hi, how are you guys?
8: Good, good.
7: (laughs) Thanks for making time. Absolutely. So for all of our listeners at home that don't have the pleasure of knowing you, can you introduce yourself? Sure. So my name is Lauren Rowe. I live in the Metro Detroit area and I've been teaching for 15 years. I'm a graduate of Michigan State. Go green! Go white! I teach in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. I spent my career teaching fifth grade for eight years, and now I've moved to the middle school level. I've taught seventh grade English language arts, and now I'm teaching language and literature eighth grade. This is my fourth year in that subject. Oh
0: my God. She has a very unusual perspective, having you know gone into the teaching field 13 years ago, and having seen her students through two very unique crises. The most recent, obviously, being COVID-19, But prior to that, she worked in a school in the Detroit area during the automotive recession where many of her students were a part of families where parents, sometimes both parents, were losing their jobs and had to support them in unique ways throughout that time. And so she's been really in the thick of it for a long time and had some really interesting things to say about supporting students' social and emotional health and how she's doing that during a critical milestone in her students' lives as they move from 8th grade to high school. So I think all of these conversations will present unique perspectives on the educational spectrum and how educators and administrators starting at really at birth all the way up through lifelong learners in a collegiate setting how are they adapting? How are they trying new things, piloting things, working in a iterative fashion to see what works, what doesn't, and really find a model that's going to work? Because the assumption is, in some way, shape, or form, there will be, in part, some online learning in the fall. But I think the question remains, is there going to be another peak of this novel coronavirus? And if so, when and will it hit? and what happens then. And so I think that educators and institutions are in a position of having to plan for every option. Obviously what happened in the spring was forcing them into reactionary mode, but as they really pulled back to take a look at, you know, what does optimal look like in a virtual setting versus how can we just put a Band-Aid on this situation? There's a lot to be learned from this time and there's a lot to be applied that will really take us into the fall and beyond. So without further ado, I think we should jump into those conversations and see what our guests had to say.
8: So what was your experience like
4: with education, both professionally and as a student before COVID?
5: My experience probably wasn't that different from most other educators. Professionally, I spent a lot of time working with faculty trying to improve how they were teaching in the classroom. But I also spent a considerable amount of time trying to help faculty understand that Online learning essentially was not an inferior way to deliver a quality educational experience for students. As a student, You know, I've done it both ways over the past 13 years. I was an online student, did my undergraduate degree, my graduate degree, and my doctorate back-to-back over a period of 12 years. And then because I work at the university and I'm insane, I decided that I would avail myself of the educational benefit at the university I work with, and I started a regular traditional master's program, which put me back as a student on campus going to class.
0: So why don't we just take
8: ourselves back about, I don't know, three months, if you can even imagine what life was like before COVID-19. And can you just talk to us a little bit about like what made your approach to teaching different in your opinion?
7: So before COVID, you know, a day in the life for me would be looking at, you know, sort of like my unit planner, my lesson book, what my learning targets were for my kids And how i could create that like social emotional bond for them and make connections within the classroom so typically i teach um five language and literature classes a day 55 to 65 minute classes so when my kids walk in we do like a warm-up activity using technology or a little icebreaker and then there'd be like a mini lesson for language arts and then we'd either read or write we do a lot of book talks in my classroom about like young adult novels trying to sort of get them reading more because of technology these days kids are obviously on their devices and Snapchat all the time so trying to actually get literature in their hands is a challenge for a middle school teacher so we do many book talks throughout the day so you know before COVID it was a lot of like hands-on learning and visual learning and um, making connections with kids and an eighth grader has a big year ahead of them where I teach you know obviously it's like their graduation year so we look at all the fun things that we're looking forward to so like Next week, we were supposed to be going to D.C. for their eighth grade trip. And so a lot of things we talk about is these rites of passages throughout the eighth grade year, and we make connections to our units using that. So there's been a lot of sad things that are missing out this year for these kids.
6: Before COVID-19, my kind of teaching philosophy was to make the kids want to learn, make the students want to learn. And to be honest, it still is. It just is done differently, right? Like they want to learn, but they don't have me there every day kind of telling them why they are learning. So yeah, before COVID-19, I would do a lot of like examples. I would do a lot of hands-on experiments with the kids and I would allow them to experiment freely and kind of learn with their own style. I don't like to make them learn a certain way, make them learn a skill a certain way. I think that everybody learns differently, just like you learn differently. I learn differently, definitely. I really
2: strive For the edubabble word for it, if I can use that, is a student-centered classroom. You know, we get told that from administration, and I I support that position, that it should be student-centered. In every 50-minute period, I I really believe you can see growth in, in every way. And so I'm big on small groups. I'm big on reporting out then, because one of the things that I've learned over the years is students who know a lot, have a lot to contribute who may not want to contribute in front of 25 peers they're much more likely to contribute in a group of two or three and so this idea of allowing them both opportunities an opportunity to share in your small group and report out and i I think that's powerful so i really do strive to have a passionate energetic classroom um it's really about just kind of lighting a fire under them
3: So before COVID, it was pretty much like all the other years where the school day encompassed children coming either till one o'clock till 3.30 and some staying as late as um, six o'clock. We have been seeing a trend in our school of more kids needing after school care with both parents working. So those were the challenges that we were facing, trying to find high quality after school care, changing up the program and making sure that all the children's needs are being met for the long time that they are at school. Once we figured out that we would have to close school, the governor was closing. All schools had to be closed by the Monday afternoon. We closed on the Friday before. So that the Monday and Tuesday could be spent doing in service with our teachers, setting everybody up with Zoom, explaining how to work it, testing it, making sure everybody's working. And um, we then sent protocols and instructions to parents and families. And the teachers took it from there. They've been Zooming with the infants who have had sing alongs with their parents and the preschoolers where they've had homework kind of stuff to bring to the Zoom calls, talk about their experiences, uh, do projects, bring the final projects to the calls, as well as using other forums like um, WhatsApp and emails with um, links and and other activities for parents to do above and beyond a Zoom call because there is only so long you can Zoom with a three-year-old.
2: So I'm I'm thinking back to the week of that ended on Friday, March thirteenth, I think it was. It was Friday the thirteenth, I believe. And that whole week everyone was a buzz about the pandemic and what was happening. And you know, the governor was moving towards limiting things. And so we then had emergency meetings in the school and we started talking about what are we doing. And we had them by department and we were going to be moving. We were fully expecting the governor to then close schools and and, and he announced it. And then we were moving to online lessons now we are in a fortunate place in solon because we at the high school anyways and i believe the middle school we were already a one-to-one school so every kid already had a chromebook now whether they had wi-fi that was good or even wi-fi at home that was a different issue that we had to address but we were in better shape and also because the kids had used google Classroom during the year so now the shift was okay they know how to do it To work on assignments but how do you have lessons actual active lessons through google classroom and that was a challenge and i would say that we were heading up until spring break right there and i would say that those first few weeks we really tried to turn our lessons, I think, just into assignments that we would follow up with. We had to figure out, how how often do you meet with your students using Google Meet? What's a realistic expectation? Are these kids caring, these high school kids caring for siblings at home? I mean, we had so many considerations, and at first it was a very kind of laid-back approach. We gave assignments, we had deadlines, but the idea of requiring kids to show up for Meets seemed unrealistic, because we didn't know what the demands were. So, you know, Google Meets were optional, which I think was a fair thing to do. And so for me, for a very student-centered classroom, that really was a struggle. The learning curve was steep. We worked through it, and I'll be honest, we're all still working through it. But I think we learned a lot heading into who knows what next year, for sure.
6: Definitely the transition into this pandemic has been hard because a lot of what we did was coding robots, building Lego contraptions to complete a task. So that's been a big obstacle that we've had to overcome.
4: Yeah, I can imagine it's pretty challenging teaching a course that requires a lot of tools that you can't access. How have you been handling that class? Can you give an example of a project that you gave them?
6: Yeah, so I've given a couple different things that I've done with that class specifically is... With the freedom of their home, the freedom of their learning with their parents or guardian that is with them, I give them challenges. I give them STEM challenges, and and I highlight the winner each week. One of them is a paper tower challenge. sounds super simple, but it's actually very difficult, and it's kind of fun to see. One of the things that we learn about in class is the engineering design process done at home. So they are able to take one piece of paper, one piece of tape, And build the tallest tower that they can out of that one piece of eight and a half by 11 paper. We just try and do as many hands-on things as we can to, to keep them engaged at home.
4: So what happened when the idea of a pandemic became reality? What did your school do specifically and how did you feel? What did you do?
6: It all hit kind of quick, specifically at my school district and I know a lot of Northeast Ohio school districts were kind of talking about this date was going to be the date we were going to be online learning. The date kept getting pushed closer and closer and closer and closer.
4: So what was the official last day that you were in the school?
6: It was some May 18th, 19th? March. March, 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 March. (laughs) March 19th. It was Thursday during school. I was in class. And we got some alerts on our phones, and every kid has a phone in class, and they get their alerts at the same time, and there there was some news going around that schools were closing down. And so I had some kids kind of ask me, like, oh, Mr. Mr. B., what do you think is going to happen? And that was the first time I think I didn't have an answer. Right then, we're all trying to problem solve. We're just trying to talk through it. Around, like, 8 o'clock at night, we get a call from our superintendent saying to all families of the district, We are not going to be coming in on Friday. The students are not going to be coming in on Friday. The teachers will be preparing materials for the kids to go home with. But it was so quickly jumped up on us that nobody was ready. So that Friday was probably the hardest I've worked in my entire life to get things ready. Me and a couple other teachers on my team worked for probably about six, seven hours straight, sitting in a classroom together, planning, trying to figure out What's gonna happen? How are we gonna teach these kids?
5: Right now, what I would call what happened in March was not a transition to online learning. It was a a pivot, as we're calling it, to remote instruction in the time of a crisis. I think it's really important to make that distinction when people are talking about what we did at the end of the spring semester. At our institution, we essentially got an edict that said students aren't gonna come back from spring break and we are gonna close classes for a day or two and faculty are pretty much gonna have a week to now completely re-envision how they're going to deliver their classes because students are no longer going to be on campus. Within that week, even, it changed from faculty would still be able to come to campus, utilize our classrooms and all of the equipment in the classrooms to still provide their lectures. Students would come in using Zoom, video conferencing, but faculty could still come to the classroom. To all of a sudden, nope, we're not even going to allow that anymore. Even faculty have to be remote. And so it was a bad... Crazy couple of weeks. I spent a lot of time helping to develop workshops for our faculty to teach them just the basics of teaching in a remote environment. We had faculty that had various levels of experience even using a video conferencing system. We are a very traditional brick and mortar institution, so the majority of folks had never taken an online course and their experience with any kind of remote learning had maybe been attending a webinar. Not what you want when students are paying a premium price for a private institution. We really wanted to be able to still provide them with an engaged learning experience. And I honestly think we did a great job. Faculty continued to hold synchronous sessions with their students. The biggest challenge is we have a a large number of international students at our school. So struggling to figure out how do we continue to engage with students who are on a 12-hour time difference from us. How do we have those live sessions? How do we have coaching sessions? How do we do group work? Now the groups are split up and some are in California and some are in China and some are in India and some are in Seattle. It was it was crazy. Not everybody had internet. Not everybody had a laptop or a webcam. How do we do assessments? We're still struggling with some of those things as we look into what are we going to do in the summer? What are we going to do in the fall? On the flip side of that coin, because I sort of do have that triad of educational experience. I was teaching during the pivot. And fortunately for me, I was teaching an online class. So while I didn't have to do a lot of revisions to my teaching plan, what we did have to do was look at the amount of work we were expecting from our students with a more empathetic eye. So we reevaluated assignments that we had them do. We pared down some of the requirements for the class because it wasn't just providing an engaged in student experience. It was also understanding that students were going through a lot of stuff. I was teaching in the master's program And these are adult students, adult professional students. A lot of our students were on the front line. We had healthcare workers, we had people in the healthcare space. A lot of them had families, everybody was freaked out. So you had to take into account the stress of the student and modify and be empathetic.
2: And the other thing too, that's becoming pretty clear to me is the effect or the struggles you face in distance learning really does vary in so many ways, depending on not just grade level, but also subject taught, even at the high school, because I know some math teachers I know have really enjoyed this. They've said, I record a lesson on how to do something, the kids work on it, and then we check in and they did it. Because they say, Mm. you know, I don't do debates. I don't do role plays. I don't do the kind of lessons. It's not a discussion-based class. And it's been interesting to hear that difference because I know in the, I know with, with English and with the histories and social studies and then science with labs, there are just parts of the classroom that, that distance learning is really an impediment to, that goes beyond just the social aspect, which is also just crushing for so many of our kids. In my very first Google meet with every class, I made every kid speak. And I came up with some rules for Google Meet that I shared with everyone in the district. Every student needed to be on mute. That's weird. Uh, There are little, you know, uh, extensions you can use, like a hand-raising extension um, for the kids to participate. But, you know, that's not how I normally would have on my room. But I want kids to listen, of course, but it's very interactive. But in that very first Google Meet I had with every class, I, I asked them what's the best and the worst part about what we called quarantine so far. What's the best and the worst part? And to a T, it was they just missed their friends and teachers. They just missed people. That goes to that social aspect of what you get out of going to school. You really learn about how to get along or how to push through difficult situations. And they really just miss each other and they miss their teachers tremendously.
8: I think that's one of the hardest things when you talk about social emotional, is supporting them when they're feeling this grieving and just trying to figure out how to do that from afar is really tough, particularly when you're such a involved hands-on teacher.
1: Do you think your philosophy has changed because of this then?
7: I don't think my philosophy has changed. No, I'm I'm really a relation-based, relationship-based teacher. You know, I really value that as an educator. The first month of school, I really try to get to know my kids on a deep level. And I think based on the subject that I teach, I'm able to do that, you know, through writing. But it's been a lot harder virtually giving feedback and checking in on kids. It's a little bit different than the normal, like, the high fives in the hall and the hugs and the banter I'm missing out on that right now. So what are the things that you're doing
8: to kind of bring that social emotional piece into the virtual environment for your kids and you know have them
7: feel that support that you typically provide to them in the classroom, you know, in addition
8: to all of the instruction
7: that mm-hmm. you're giving them? So in Detroit when COVID hit, we were we went on lockdown pretty quickly and our school district decided that we were just going to sort of go with what we know, and we used a platform called Google Classroom, and we supported our kids that way for three weeks doing some, you know, assignments. We had spring break come up. And we decided we needed to sort of really hit that social-emotional piece with kids. So in our district, we do office hours, we call them. And I meet with my students in Google Meet platforms two to three times a week for half hour settings or more. And the kids can voluntarily come into those platforms. Typically, there's a learning target. But for me, I just sort of like to see their faces. And I start usually, I post it to my Google Classroom that there's an agenda for the meeting. So typically, how it will look is we talk about what the lesson looks like for the day what the expectation is for the class and the course and the assignment and then we sort of leave it with final thoughts and final thoughts can look differently sometimes we have like a fun little icebreaker where you know I ask the kids a question and they share out and some weeks you just sort of can see the kids especially when they show their faces on the grid view I can sort of see their emotions we did a really cool question the other day about in Detroit we had the Blue Angels fly over for the healthcare workers So I asked my eighth graders, if you could give a flyover to anybody, who would you give it to and why? And our Google Meet went on for more than a half hour because the kids just wanted to share out, like, their grandparents, you know, aunt who's a nurse at Providence Hospital or a teacher or a friend that they haven't seen. So I think through that, I mean – this is not just about learning right now, it's about the anxiety these kids are dealing with because they're not around their peers or their teachers. And I think the one thing that's really great about the age that I teach is, one thing that I shared with them was, you know, for all of them that come to school on a daily basis saying, I hate going to school or I don't wanna do my homework, I think they're learning the value of their education right now and how much they miss it. And I think that's something that's gonna be a huge takeaway from all of this. Once we finally go back into the classroom, A lot of kids are going to want to be there on a daily basis and maybe be more invested than they were before.
3: We looked for other ways of getting them out in nature, virtual tours of zoos and other things that they were learning, and just trying to keep morale up for everybody who was involved. It was really, really hard for parents and the children and the staff to be away from each other, and everybody missed each other. And we had the opportunity, and there was a Jewish holiday that happened to fall a month after we went into lockdown. And we did a drive-by where all the staff stood at a safe distance um, from each other. And families drove through the school parking lot, honking and waving and giving the teachers and the kids a chance to see each other. And it really was a phenomenal thing, something that previously probably wouldn't have got even a thought. It just lifted the spirits of parents, uh, teachers and the children. It was just so nice for them to reconnect in a different kind of new way.
8: You know, one thing I was curious about, Lauren, is when the last recession hit, and the automotive bailout was happening. I remember having conversations with you about the fact that you had kids that were deeply affected by that. Mm -hmm. And obviously there was a huge emotional impact on families that were losing their livelihoods, losing everything pretty much in the Detroit area. And I know that you did a lot of things to support your students at that time. Do you draw any parallels between that situation and this one as far as things that you learned in that time that maybe you're taking with you into this very different, but very trying emotional time for your kids?
7: Well, I think there's some parallels. It definitely I think is a little bit of a different scenario, but during that time period we were closing schools in our district and downsizing to smaller elementaries and we were moving fifth graders to the middle school at that time. And that's when I was losing that elementary flair as a fifth grade teacher and I was going to a a middle school and teaching fifth grade in a middle school classroom. So we were developing relationships and that social emotional piece again, where kids weren't sure where they fit in. And they were struggling at home with anxiety, with especially a fifth grader going into a middle school environment. Like, how am I going to fit in? How am I going to get on the bus? Who's going to take care of me? Where when you're in elementary school, you're the top dog at that time. And now with COVID, we're, we're still dealing with the anxiety of kids not sure where they fit in right now. Like on a daily basis, I get emails from eighth graders saying, you know, Mrs. Rowe, I didn't complete my assignments this week because I'm struggling with just my stress level with life and what's going on around me. So there's some parallels I think with just like the stress level. And I think because families are dealing with losing jobs or maybe, you know, getting food on the table, their kids are dealing with the same kind of problems but virtually I'm not seeing it because I'm not seeing the kids face to face like I would in a classroom. But the kids that are pretty interactive or know how to self-advocate, I'm hearing it through them via email.
3: So what are you doing now? as the school year and semesters ending? So we are going full steam ahead in the hopes that we will be opening in the fall. We are planning for the building, for the children's safe return, for the teachers safe return. And pretty much following guidelines, which continue to change daily, but setting up new protocols and practices for what our post-COVID school will look like. Everybody is um, enthused, teachers want to come back in whatever way, shape or form. And um, we're hoping to make it a seamless transition, just following protocols and keeping everybody safe, as well as providing, you know, the education that they're used to.
6: In the fall, I think a lot of schools are going to transition to what some places are calling a high flex. So it's a hybrid flexible learning environment. And that kind of consists of partial in-person classes and partial online classes. So what that could possibly look like in a middle school setting is two days a week, the kids are in class and I'm demonstrating the skill. And then the other two days or three days that they're at home, On a computer they can demonstrate the skill. So that's kind of what I think will happen in the fall but for the foreseeable future I think education is going to be changed a little bit because I think we're going to realize a lot of stuff can be done online and there's a lot of benefits to online um, but there's also a lot of drawbacks so it's going to be balancing the two for sure.
5: Our summer semester has gone to fully remote and our fall semester is still up in the air. We're planning for what they're calling a dual delivery or hybrid approach. We're not really sure what that means. There's a whole new batch of faculty that are teaching in the fall that didn't experience the pivot to remote in the spring. It's still all a moving target. I think there's a lot of work left to be done. And the one thing that I've been very convinced about is that in the fall semester, I don't believe students will be as understanding. I think that students will have an expectation for a level of quality that they didn't have in the spring semester because now we will have time to plan. If you read the trades for education, the Chronicle of Higher Education, Inside Higher Education, there is a movement out there or there are students that feel that if schools do choose for remote in the fall or if there's a high percentage of remote that again, they feel that that's not the education that they were promised and so tuition should be reduced. From a student perspective, if you don't do a good job delivering on quality and delivering on student experience, I can understand why you would feel that way. Putting on my educational administrator's hat, it doesn't cost us any less money to deliver that education to the students than if they were on campus. We still have faculty instructional costs, we still have technology costs, we still have facility costs. So I think that we as educators really need to spend the summer working to ensure that what we're providing to our students, whether it's remote, whether it's hybrid, whether it's in person, all delivers on the quality of education and student experience that they're paying for.
4: How do you think this overall experience will change education in the future?
5: A lot of people with many more degrees and experience than I have proselytized over the years on how they thought there would be disruption in higher education. In my opinion, I think one of the things that we are going to see if we do the fall well is that people, no matter their connection to education, will understand that online education is not inherently inferior to -to face-to-face education. What I think I see happening moving forward is, and I'm already seeing it, I'm seeing faculty that taught during the pivot that were against online education, making comments like, you know what? I really was able to connect with my students in an online environment. I really was able to just kind of not miss a beat. Like I switched to Zoom, I did synchronous sessions with my students, We had some engaging discussions in asynchronous. Yeah, I think I might be more likely to consider teaching in the online program that you're putting together. I think we're seeing a change in attitude among a lot of the professoriate that didn't put a lot of credence in the fact that you could have a quality experience in an online environment and teaching remotely has shown them that's not the case. I think we're going to see some students potentially that begin to look for lower cost educational opportunities closer to home, especially right now. A lot of the things, at least in higher education, that we're wrestling with is we want to bring students back to campus. Students that choose To come to our school, choose to do so because they want the residential college experience, especially at the undergraduate level. They want to separate from their parents. They want to go away from home. They want to live on campus and they want to do all of those things that you can do. But what we're facing is a semester of social distancing, significant reduction in the number of students you can put in a classroom, no club meetings, no all of these things. And what happens if we get everybody back and in October there's another surge and now we have to send people home again? So I think there's a lot of issues right now that schools are facing with how do we respond? How do we keep our kids safe? How do we keep our community safe? It's difficult to see what's going to happen when we come out on the other side. I think there's going to be a lot of smaller uh, universities that don't make it. And it's a sad thing because it's, you know, a lot of small liberal arts colleges, a lot of these really specialty boutique schools that offer a great opportunity for people that just aren't going to make it to the other side. So there's going to be less choice and less opportunity for students moving forward.
2: I'd like to think that we as a society and the powers that be in education, I hope that we do learn some things. One of the things I hope comes out of this is finally a discussion about the school day. You know, the fact that high school students really need to sleep in. Teenagers need to sleep in. They need to start later. And every teacher will tell you who's been working virtually that the kids talk about, I'm finally getting sleep. For high school to start in the 7 a.m. hour is is just something that research has shown should change. And boy, online learning parents now I think see that. I think parents are seeing that. And so I really hope parents push for that. We need to look at that. I know there are barriers and challenges to flipping it so that the younger kids go first, start earlier. But I think that's a change I really hope to see. I also think that I hope that this really raises the level of awareness about inequities in education. You know, I'm in Solon. We've got access to materials. Our families are generally in great shape. As best as you could hope for distance learning with lots of exceptions, of course, not 100%. And we work to help them. But, you know, I think of my nephew teaching in the city of Cleveland, where he teaches elementary school, and they didn't have devices. And a huge chunk of his students don't even really have Wi Fi at home. So I think we now have to redefine what equity in education means. And I think the pandemic, I hope, has really put a spotlight on that and that something is done. About it, people say it's more money. Well, it might be more money. It might just also be how we spend the money. But I, I just think th- those are two things that stood out for me as I talked to my nephew and I and I talked to my friends who I know around the country who teach in different settings and just the ability to empower children to work independently and what that means. I think those are lessons that I hope we take from this.
3: Can you give me some advice for students or even parents? So for the kids, our advice to the children is just the weather is now finally cooperating with us. Get outside, play in the mud, pick flowers, (laughs) go for bike rides, draw with chalk on the sidewalk. Just do outdoor stuff, get your bodies out, get them running, get them active. There are so many resources that parents have been sent. And at the same time, they should. The parents need to relax too. There is no pressure. These children will learn. They will get back to education, and all of the things that they can do are all learning experiences. So it's a different kind of experience. But just you know, let them explore, let them feel, let them create, and take this time to bond with your children because it it really is a gift. the The other side is hopefully coming soon. Communicate, communicate,
5: communicate. Mm-hmm that would be a big piece of advice. Communicate with your instructor. Communicate with your program director. If you're struggling, let somebody know. Your faculty are invested in your success. Let them know when you're having a problem. I hope
2: I'm sending them off with a strong sense of empowerment, that they can take ownership over their own learning. Because we talk a lot about that in education and certainly at the high school level, especially that we have to empower them, you know, to be independent learners. And they kind of haven't had a choice here. They've had to. And what I've tried to communicate with my parents and I think with my students is everybody be patient. We're going to get through this together one way or another and just communicate. You know, when, when I had kids not turning stuff in, I just kept saying, just communicate with me. All I ask you to do. Just let me know what's going on. Have some pride in yourself as an independent learner. You can do this. You know, I've been trying to cheer them on in Google Classroom. I've been writing a lot of personal comments to kids and assignments that maybe I wouldn't do otherwise because I'd see them in the classroom. And I'd say it to them when I pass something back. So instead, now I'm typing in that personal comment. And kids will use those private comments. They're like little one-on-one
6: conversations.
2: And so, yeah, just believe that you can do this. You can do this.
6: I think during these times right now, there's a lot of heroes out there, and and parents are one of them.
4: What would your advice to those parents be for your students right now?
6: Stay strong. You can't really call their parents, so (laughs) um, just stay strong and and be supportive, because it's going to be really easy to say, oh, why didn't you do your work? Well, usually Mr. B tells me that I have to get this done at this time, and and I want to step up and be that person, but you as a parent, you got a lot going on, but be there for your kid be there when it's stressful be there when they have a lot of work be there when they can't see their friends and they're going through like a depression because they don't know what it is not to socialize so i think it's just be there and be present in a time like this because that's what we all need is someone just to be there
4: what about for those students what would you tell them
6: learn what you want and love what you learn because if you're not learning what you what you love you know, you're not going to really ever know it. You're not going to really ever want to know it. Really pick your your niche and just stick with it.
8: What kind of advice can you offer to parents who find themselves in this position of being responsible for, I don't even want to call it homeschooling, but, you know, let's call it playing IT support for their kids as <laughs> they homeschool, but also having to do a lot more of the heavy lift as far as the rest of the day is concerned.
7: Yeah. Honestly, like it's all about balance and being open-minded, I believe. I have a seven and a five-year-old at home, so I am not only an eighth-grade teacher right now, but I'm a first-grade teacher, and I'm a pre-K teacher, and I'm not trained in pre-K at all. I think one of the things that I've been telling my friends and my family members here in Detroit too that are struggling with the stress of being a working parent and dealing with virtual learning is just do what you can. You know, looking at my first grader, I know that math is a strength for her and she enjoys it. So that's something that we we do daily. And reading and writing is super important. So we do that the best we can. Well, I'm teaching and I'm in my meets, I'm trying to balance it all. So I think... A couple things through this is that there's a lot of parents that put a lot of stress on themselves, that they have to do everything that's being sent home by their school district. I think you have to do what you can, especially the age of your child, you know. So, obviously, elementary kids are going to need a little bit more hand-holding. Middle schoolers should be a little bit more codependent than high schoolers. But just choose and pick your battles. You know, in my in our house, we don't do social studies and science in the elementary realm right now. That's That's on the back burner. I worry about the language and I worry about the math and I'm just trying to make fun with it. So, you know, every day I create a schedule for my first grader and we go with that. And then for summer, I think the best advice I can give parents is this is a really good time for kids to read and write. So I'm really pushing like a journal or a voice attacks Google doc. Like if kids really struggle with hand motor skills, they can always talk into a computer and, you know, Google will type for them and maybe journal about this pandemic and what, how their life has changed. And obviously it's like some really good books. So I know a ton of libraries offer, you know, like the free e-readers and this is a great time to just dive into a book. I'm sure any kind of library or school system can support students that way. But even if kids aren't showing signs that this is a stressful time, they're definitely having emotional needs of feeling isolated and missing their friends and and interaction. So anything parents can do to help them with de-stressing, whether through reading or writing or like a fun little math game here or there, I think would make a kid's day.
1: What would you say to your students as they move on and go into high school? What's your advice for them?
7: I want them to live life to the fullest no matter what is thrown at them because in life challenges are always going to happen big or small and set their eye to like what they want to succeed and the achievements they hope to to make and go from there. So this is stressful for everybody, but if you can find some some good in it. Maybe think about how being isolated and self-quarantine, you can better your life a little bit and maybe what goals you want to achieve moving forward and what you value.
3: Well, thank you for your time today. Absolutely.
7: Thank you
4: for spending some time to talk with us about this.
6: Oh, thank you for having me.
8: Great. Well, thank you for spending so much time with us. Thanks again, Lauren. Thank you for your insights on this, Suzanne, Dr. Healy.
5: You're very welcome. Stay healthy. we are going to need a bigger boat.
1: The bigger boat for this episode of Open Swim is unique, and that is a collective nod from the team here at Shark and Minnow. To all of the teachers, educators, administrators, and staffs of schools and universities, and for the parents and caretakers that took on that unexpected and somewhat sudden role and responsibility, as the school year comes to an end, we want to salute the care, guidance, inspiration, dedication, and yes, the patience and willingness to adapt that you have all shown. Amongst the many things this pandemic has shown a light on, one of the most prominent is a heightened respect for, and perhaps even an astonishment, for what educators take on day to day throughout the academic school year. To you, we simply say, thank you.
0: This episode of Open Swim is in support of all of the for-profit companies that are supporting our educators and using their capital and influence for good, such as Verizon, who's introduced the Verizon Innovative Learning Schools program that supports students and educators with tablets and data plans so that they can continue their schooling in a virtual environment. Thank you to everyone who is supporting our not-for-profit educational community, and let's hope that we emerge from this stronger and more innovative than ever.
8: Open Swim is brought to you by Shark and Minnow, on the web at sharkandminnow.com. On Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, we are at Shark and Minnow. Technical support and audio production by Eugene Bueller. HR oversight by Marcia Tacone. Fashion policing by Felicia Winfrey.